Well, it was my task to go through chapters 7 and 8. And that was an easy one this time because 7 talks about servanthood. Gee, that sounds like a familiar topic. And 8 deals with ambition. And the two overlap in some way, shape, and form. So we're calling tonight the ambitious servant in a good way. Now, I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have seen the movie The Ten Commandments. You know, the one with Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner. And, I mean, it's a long movie and it shows up on TV every Easter. And most people never really watch it all the way through to the end on TV. But there is a part at the beginning that I want to kind of you to look at in a sense. No, we're not going to play it up on the screen. But this is a, an interesting little byplay. Uh, between Moses, played by Charlton Heston, and Ramses, played by Yul Brenner. And basically, they're both princes of Egypt at this point. Okay? And both are aware that either one of them might become the next pharaoh. And they're both, at this point, still servants of pharaoh. And it's instructive to look how each one kind of played the part of a servant, and how they... Um, how this all played out in the movie. We see two types of ambition here. A good ambition and a negative one. And like so many other English words, there is a good side to ambition and a bad side. The good side is, if you're ambitious, you're not lazy. There's something that needs to be done, you go out and do it. You don't wait around for it, you don't worry about it, you just say, hey, we need to do this, let's get going. And it's done, and it's done right. It's not done haphazardly. You do it because, in many respects, like if you're a, a, a workman or a, a craftsman of some sort, it's your, you know, it's your handiwork that you're displaying. If it looks sloppy, if it looks bad, it reflects negatively on you. So you do your best. Then there's the negative one, which we will get to presently. It has to do with motivation why you're doing what you're doing. Now, Moses' attitude towards service in the movie was summed up in one of my favorite lines. Your wish is my will. Okay? He threw himself into his task wholeheartedly. He didn't question why it had to be done. It was Pharaoh told me to. I'm a servant of Pharaoh, therefore this needs to be done, and it needs to be done right. Not for his own glory, though he got a lot of uh, accolades for what he did. But it was to please his master, and please him he did. If he had continued along this path, at least according to the movie, he would have been the next pharaoh. He would have been rewarded for all his ambition and all his hard work. But being the pharaoh was not his goal. In fact, he didn't even think he deserved it because he wasn't even pharaoh's son. He was basically an adopted nephew, though at that point he didn't know he was adopted. But he he was aware of the possibility, but his ambition was positive. I'm doing this because I want to please my master and glorify him. But on the other hand, Ramses demonstrated the negative side of ambition. The desire to move up, to push past others no matter what the cost and for all the glory. Ramses had his eyes on the throne. He was in it for the power. And he did not care who was in his way. When things tended to go wrong with him, and they did quite often if you watch the movie, he blamed others. But he never took responsibility for his actions. He figured that his father owed him the throne. After all, he was the son of Pharaoh. Nothing else mattered. didn't matter if he wasn't a good ruler, if he wasn't wise, if he had no tact, or even the ability to rule. The right to rule was his because of his ancestry. And his father saw right through this. In fact, had a great line there. I owe my throne not to my sons, but to my father's. Okay, And he had the same philosophy. And if things had continued as planned, Ramses would have never have ruled. Now what has this got to do with being a servant of Christ? Well, we can see this exact same parallel within two different types of servants. Okay, We've all seen them. We all remember that moment when we gave our lives to Christ. We have heard a lot of testimonies from up here to us all about how basically... And from one side, they were messed up. We had drugs, we had this, we had that. And the Lord came and boom, all was better. Things got better. Man, he's now on fire for the Lord. He's a servant. He just cannot thank the Lord enough for saving him from the, from the horrible condition he was in before. We've had other, other uh, testimonies that were maybe not quite so dramatic. 
yeah, I was a good person, but I really didn't have that relationship. And then I kind of went through the motions. And then finally one day it dawned on me, wow, I need Christ. It was inspiring to hear all of these. I mean, I hope we continue on with more. I know I've kind of run out a little bit, but it was inspiring because when we heard these, we realized that we all came from basically the same roots. We are sinners. But now we are servants. The Lord has used what would have been considered by most people pretty darn useless to do some awesome things, such as helping him establish the church we have here and watching it grow. No, we did not do it on our own power. We were just merely tools, but we are honored to be those tools nonetheless. We are the Lord's servants. Or as Paul likes to put it in a lot of his letters to the different churches, his bond servants. Let's take a look at this for a second. What exactly is a servant? By definition, out of the New Oxford American Dictionary, a servant is defined as a person who performs duties for others. A person who performs duties for others. Okay? A bond servant, a person bound in service without wages. In a word, slave. This means that servanthood is more than just a job. It is our life. A bondservant of the Lord means, and we can look at Matthew 6.10. You don't have to turn. It should be behind me. In Matthew 6.10, the words here, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are to be taken literally. And it is up to us to see that this is carried out to the best of our ability. So let it be written. So let it be done. Again from the movie. This is not just by doing good things. I mean, anyone could do good works, whether they're saved or unsaved. But it requires a complete shift of attitude or priorities, a recognition that God is supposed to call the shots in our lives and we are supposed to obey. However, as we all can admit, this does not come natural for any of us. From the very beginning, man has had free will. The ability to choose their own path with full knowledge of the consequences each option ahead of us will carry. As a result, submitting under a higher authority, no matter how benevolent, well, just doesn't come naturally. It's no easy task. We have our own personal preferences, our interests, our goals, our dreams, our ideas, and so forth. We are individuals. So... Some of these may be God-given, but we get so wrapped up in our own things that we forget Jesus' admonition in Matthew 10.24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. And herein lies the problem. Many people view any work in ministry as something you do on the weekends or on your spare time. Okay? They may give lip service to servanthood, and they will support those who do ministry full-time. But when other, more pressing issues of life come their way, be it a football game, be it work issues, be it, oh, I had a headache, ministry tends to go on the siding for them. Now, some of these issues that we come across are unavoidable. We have major catastrophes or major illnesses in the family. Family is our first ministry. We have to tend to those. Yes, if it means we're going to miss church or if there's something we were supposed to do doesn't get done, It happens. But if your life is one continuous catastrophe, there's a problem. Okay? I had a student many, many years ago who always gave an excuse. It started, I'm sorry I didn't get my homework done, but my grandfather died yesterday and we're all kind of upset. And I had no reason to disbelieve him. He was absent few days later and so we figured okay yeah his grandfather died and then a couple weeks later says oh yeah I didn't get my homework done because my uh, aunt died okay and a couple weeks later my cousin died and a few weeks later this obscure relative died and that obscure relative died it got to the point where I was glad I wasn't a member of this kid's family <laughs> and I was wondering was there anybody left in his family alive I mean was he down by himself but that's the point. A lot of us kind of follow those same excuses. It's just like, yeah, we are, we're, we're servants, but Lord, something came along. And 
Well, you've heard me say this before, and I believe it firmly. Being a servant of Christ is my real job. The one I make money with, that's the day job. Yeah, it means I have to do a lot. It means we all have to do a lot. But that's what Christ expects of us. Because, as he said in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters. He will either hate one or love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You will cannot serve God and mammon. Or as the New, International, or New American Standard puts it, you cannot serve God and wealth. Okay? Oftentimes we ignore that point. It's humankind. Don't feel bad about it. But the thing is, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's a pretty heavy expectation. One that Jesus made no bones about when talking to his disciples or to potential disciples. Luke 9, 23-25 gives us a glimpse of one of these discussions. Jesus tells his disciples... But he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Now these are not pleasing words. They go against our natural grain. But that was the expectation. Christ wanted to make it clear that being his servant is a full-time job, not just something to be done when time permits. Jesus gave himself totally to his Father's work and expected his disciples to do the same, not just the twelve, but all of us. So what exactly is the perfect servant? Okay, We've talked about some of our weaknesses, but what really is expected of a perfect servant? Well, Saunders pointed out a nice passage, and we're going to kind of go through that. It's in Isaiah 42. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 42. We have a description, and of course Christ gives us the example. And a lot of people say, well, Christ is perfect because he was God. Well, yeah, but he was also man, and he lived as a man. But we are to be as Christ. We are to emulate him as much as we can. Yeah, we're going to fail. Yeah, it's not easy. But we need to do our best and not have any excuses why we may fall short. We just make sure we don't. Starting in verse 1 of Isaiah 42, we find a description of Christ as the perfect servant. So let's read it. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. I will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. So there's a lot of lot of qualities that are described here. And if you read through chapter 7, you saw each one point by point. And we're kind of going to go through those, maybe not point by point, because they do tend to move together. And let's start with the first one. Well, we have a day job. We're supposed to make money. What does the Lord expect us to do? Just forget it and serve him always? Answer. If you were a slave or a servant, you were expected to do whatever your master demanded of you without question. However, your master, in turn, was expected to take care of your basic needs. Food, clothing, living arrangements, and so forth. Some masters even arranged marriages for their servants. Now, in short, a servant is totally dependent upon his master. Okay? Now, granted, it is true that in history there were some cruel masters providing the bare minimum and sending their slaves to work in the fields and chains, but we're not talking about human masters. We are talking about the Lord. He's not going to do that to us. He's not going to provide us with the bare minimum or send us out to work in chains. He is going to give us what we need. Food, clothing, living arrangements, and so forth. And, as some of us know, he might even provide a spouse. He does that. As Jesus admonished us in Matthew 6, 25-34, starting in verse 25, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, 
what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to your stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But ask first, seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. When the Lord calls us for a task, he provides us what we need. Now, we may not think we're ready. Okay, A lot of times the Lord gives you a calling. It's just like, well, I'm not ready. I uh, don't have enough Bible school. I don't have enough this. I don't have enough that. And then out comes the reasonings. And the Lord's saying, I still want you to go. Now, you may think, well, you know, Lord, really? Um, are you sure about this? Well, that's rather bold of you. God doesn't make mistakes. He knows you probably better than you know yourself. He wants you to go to as a missionary to say Burundi? Well, you'll be ready. Or at least you will be by the time you get there. He's not going to send you out there if he doesn't think you can do it. There's no reason for him to do that. It was like what Pastor Brian said a couple of weeks ago. Okay, Remember that sermon? Our natural response to a calling like that Here I am, Lord. Please send somebody else. Okay? We can resist that calling. We can resist it for a while. We can make lots of excuses. We can even back it up with all sorts of evidence showing our incompetence. But God will still keep calling. And at some point, we're going to end up going. We can go the easy way, when he says. We'll go the hard way, our own little path, and find out that no matter what, we're still going to Burundi. No, we aren't, but that's the example. We need to let ourselves understand that God will take care of us no matter what, because with God all things are possible. Now we must also understand that as a servant, we are accepted by God. At the moment of salvation, God said, Come on in, you are now my servant. Now a slave was purchased by his master. Likewise, a servant was hired by an employer. Now God purchased us from sin using the blood of Jesus' payment, taking us out of the slavery of sin into the joys of Christian servanthood. He accepted us as is and worked and continues to work to perfect us into what he wants us to be. Now Luke 12.32 tells us, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I actually like the way the New American Standard puts it. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Chosen gladly. That's an awesome thought if you think it through. Here we were, I don't know, you know, we've heard lots of testimonies. Where we were before Christ saved us. A mess we were, how unworthy we feel, and yet he's chosen to give us the kingdom. Isn't that cool? That's a nice thought, very comforting thought when, we, when the call comes. And when I say acceptance, by the way, acceptance is not simply tolerance. God just doesn't put up with us because he has to. Okay, oh yeah, well I, was, I became a Christian, I was a real scummy fellow, so God just has me here because he has to, and he, he really doesn't, can't use me. No, that's not the love of God, that's not true acceptance. He wants us to be his servants. He commanded us to be his servants. Cheerfully joyfully because he loves us and wants us to spend eternity with him in the same fellowship he had with Adam and Eve from the very beginning. And, like a good employer, he provides us with the skills needed for the jobs we are called to do. How many times he has gifts that he builds upon. We have certain talents that 
we've always had since childhood. And he says, okay, I want you to use your talents, be it a mechanic, okay, be it a chef, be it a computer programmer, be it, you know, a graphic artist, whatever it is. Now, you've got those gifts, let's use them. Many times he gives us skills we did not even know we had. Like standing in front of a, lot of a large group of people when before you were afraid to say boo to anyone. Philippians 1, 5-6 tells us, For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God has accepted all of us and has a use for every single one of us. However, there is a downside to this. A warning. We must remember that this acceptance as a servant is conditional. Just as any employee that does not do their job can be fired, so can a servant of the Lord if they do not do their tasks. Turn with me to Matthew 25. Okay, so here we go, flipping away. Matthew 25. Starting in verse 14. Verses 14 through 30 give us a very vivid example of what can happen when a servant doesn't do their job for whatever reason. So Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to him, or to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, or their own ability. And immediately he went off on a journey. Then he who had received five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received the five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more besides them. And his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things, and and I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. And look, I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you you have not sown, and gathering where you have not gathered seed. I was afraid, and went and hid your talent in the ground, and look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seeds, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now note first off from this passage, there's a lot going on here. First off, not all the servants were given the same amounts. Apparently the master had already evaluated the effectiveness of each servant and acted accordingly. God does that with us an awful lot. He gives a lot of responsibility to some people, very little to others. Now this is not a form of punishment. What's happening here is kind of a test. Lord saying, okay, I'm giving you this, let's see what you do with it. Let's see how you use this gift I've given to you. Whatever gifts we are given, we are expected to use them to the best of our abilities and not merely get by with the bare minimum. We will find that the Lord will reward us with more each time we successfully complete a task. And the first two servants began their endeavor immediately. As soon as they got their money, out they went. And they took care of it immediately. They felt the responsibility of their assignment and went to work without delay. 
They were rewarded for their faithfulness and their hard work when the time of accounting came. They loved their master. They understood the instructions and they did not want to fail at all. But let's focus on the third servant. He unwillingly, he was unwilling to work or to take risks. So he merely dug a hole and buried the money. Now when called to account, he accuses his master of grasping, of exploiting the labor of others and putting the servant in essentially a no-win situation. Basically, if I risk the money, you know, risk taking the money and I lose, you're going to be angry with me and maybe I'll do something wrong, so will be mad at me, so I figure I'll bury it and you got your money. No, Nothing ventured, nothing gained, but nothing lost either. End of discussion. Okay? Unfortunately, he still didn't win. Because, well, we don't know why he chose this this uh, path. Maybe he was jealous. Maybe he thought, why am I only getting one? Why are they getting two and that one over there five? Why not? Why am I just getting one? Well, I'll show that, Master. I'll just bury it. He'll get his money back. I'm not going to take anything. I'm not going to steal it. I'm, but he's going to get what he got. Nothing more, nothing less. We don't know the what happened, but whatever it was, he overlooked his responsibility to his master and his obligation to discharge his assigned duties. He had a job to do and he failed to do it. Such failure betrayed his lack of love for his master. That's a scary thought right there. But he masked that by blaming his master and excusing himself. Now really only a wicked servant will blame his master for something he himself failed to do. And by the way, guys, grace never condones irresponsibility. Even those those given less are still obligated to use and develop what they have. The master condemns the servant on the basis of his own words, which prove his guilt. If the master was really so harsh and greedy, shouldn't the servant have at least put the money in the bank and got some interest out of it? The talent when entrusted to this wicked servant was taken from him. And then the relationship between the servant and the master is terminated, ended. The wicked servant is worthless. For to fail to do good and to use what God has entrusted to us is a grievous sin, which results not only in the loss of neglected resources, but in the rejection by the master, banishment from his presence, and tears and grinding of teeth. The parable is a warning to us all. It stresses that servanthood should not be taken lightly and should not lead to inaction, but to doing one's duty, to growing and developing the resources God entrusts to us until after a long time our master does return and settle his accounts. We see the positive side of ambition, however. The first two servants were very ambitious. They got to work right away and they did very well and were rewarded by their master for their labors. The third, service was not, the third servant was not ambitious. He was lazy and he used excuses and blamed others for why he did not produce anything at all. This type of service is never blessed, by the way. People do it. There's a lot of people who will say, yeah, I'll do this, and they don't follow through. And they use excuses, but it's never blessed. And they may fool people for a while, but we never fool the Lord. It's like we want all the privileges of being a servant of the Lord, but we don't want any of the responsibilities. It doesn't work that way. It's a dangerous place to be because now we know what the outcome is. Some some people who act like this, you question if they were they were ever saved to begin with, if that's how they felt about their service. We can't judge that, but you do, it does that question does come to mind. Positive ambition, by the way. Let's move on with that with that thought. Positive ambition always also has a way of being what Saunders called self-effacing. Self-effacing is a quaint term that basically means not claiming attention for oneself. Um, probably a good synonym for a, a, in, in our language would be modest. Okay. However, sometimes modesty tends to be overrated. A lot of people try to underestimate their gifts or try to tear themselves down. Oh, you know, no, I'm not, I'm not that good looking. Or no, I don't have that good of a voice. Or no, I'm not that good of a writer. You know, whatever. That's not really modesty. Modesty basically says, yeah, I may have done something, but 
I don't want the credit for it right now, or I don't want the glory for it. Self-abasement doesn't brag. It doesn't boast. It tries to draw attention away from yourself and toward the Lord. That's what it was talking about when you're talking about self-effacement. Um, we don't need to brag to God. He knows already what's going on. And we don't need to brag to others around us. As a servant, we belong to Christ. And it is to Him that we must give the glory. Now Christ, if you look at it as an example, He went out of His way to avoid publicizing His activities. He never published his itinerary as he went throughout the Holy Land. He never made press releases. Come to the healing today at the Pool of Bethesda and see the amazing Messiah. You didn't see stuff like that. In fact, when he healed people, he oftentimes told them, don't say anything about it. Okay, Heal the lepers, go tell the priest, but you know, have the, show yourself to the priest, give the appropriate sacrifices, but let it end there. He was, Christ was self-effacing. Because he claimed him, he said it himself in John five thirty. I can do, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus many times said, "The Father is doing. I am doing what the Father puts into me. I am not doing this of my own strength or of my own power." Jesus made sure that his disciples understood the same thing. And he used the vine as a picture of their relationship. Going to John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. And moving on, the apostles took this to heart and did not trade credit for what they've done. For example, after the day of Pentecost, Peter and John were entering into the temple. And they saw a lame man begging for alms. Excuse me. The man was expecting money. But Peter said to him, and this is in Acts 3, verse 6, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. Here's the key phrase. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He didn't merely say, oh, well, let me heal you. Put his hand out and up you want. No, he made it clear. This is not from my power. This is in the name of Jesus. He invoked Jesus' name and gave the glory to him. And we see this pattern repeated throughout the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament. It is not by by our own power. We are trying to get attention away from us onto the Lord. Christ also made many good examples of the opposite of self-effacement. Let's call it pride. He was particularly harsh against the hypocritically religious. We have visited Matthew 6 an awful lot, so let's go back there again, starting in verse 1. So let's turn back to Matthew 6, starting at verse 1. And this whole discussion is trying to take the spotlight off of you and putting it on the Lord. So in Matthew 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. Then your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your own room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Now, jump to verse 16. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites, with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, 
Wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. This is a trap, by the way, guys, that we are we easily fall into because we all like attention and we do like praise for doing well. And there's nothing wrong with being complimented for a job well done. However, what's being said here is this should not be your goal. We should not be bitter also when such praise is not forthcoming. It's nice to be complimented, but if I'm not complimented, let it pass. That's okay, because God's the one that counts. He's the one that saw you. He's the one that's going to reward you for what you've done. Straying from this principle can have some devastating results, and I'm sure we have all heard or heard of church leaders on TV at various times and places brag about what they do at the church in such a way as to draw the attention to themselves. I built this, or I did that, and I named the chapel after me, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Oh yeah, they may give lip service to the Lord. Oh yes, the Lord allowed me to do this, and the Spirit was on me when I did it. But I, 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 it's all about me. The attitude comes out is, God is so lucky to have me on his team. Yes, he is. There was one disturbing incident with which I was a witness. A non-believer was at a party. And there were a lot of Christians in attendance. And there was one brother who was talking about all the things he did at the church. But it was not because of what the Lord did. He was talking about himself very loudly. And it was actually pretty much a monologue. No one else could really say much of anything. And this non-Christian came up to me and basically said, you know, this is why I don't like going to churches. They have leaders like that who are boasting about themselves. The thing was, this guy wasn't even a leader who was talking, but he made himself like he was. That's devastating to stumble a non-Christian to toot your own horn. Now, guys, I think it's okay sometimes, under the right conditions, to talk about what we've done for the Lord. We have the, the... Missions groups come up here and tell us all the wonderful things the Lord has done. But that's the key. It's the wonderful things the Lord has done. Not the wonderful things I have done. Okay? Occasionally, you know, speakers up here will relate a story about something that has happened. But it's not because I'm showing you how wonderful I am or how wonderful he is or she is or whatever. It is, this is something that happened that we can all relate to. But what happens oftentimes, it comes off in the wrong direction. And I'm as guilty as the next man of this one. I have to watch myself that I don't brag about things that I do. I prefer being in the shadows. I think a lot of you know that. I prefer that. And I'm not saying that to brag. Because my reward is from the Lord. Oh, I don't mind getting recognized from now and then. But that's not, my, that's not what I'm after. As a school teacher, I go for years and not know if I've ever heard, if I've ever touched a single student. I've been teaching for 25 years. Occasionally I get letters. Occasionally I hear people come up and say, thank you, I'm glad you were my teacher. Maybe one out of 2,000 students every few, every now and then. But that's not my goal. I'm there to serve the students just like I'm in this church to serve the Lord. And that's a lesson that I have to keep Remembering and have to keep learning. I cannot forget these lessons. He showed us the way to the kingdom of God is the low road of servanthood, not the high road of glory. God doesn't need us to point out to him what we've done in his service. He already knows. And if all the things that we do in his service don't speak for themselves, we don't need to speak out for them. This, by the way, is the road to negative ambition. The person gets in his head that he is so valuable that the church to the church that they feel that the church could not function without them. Someone ambitious in this way might think that they're up to be the next Greg Laurie or the next Billy Graham. They want to start their climb up the church leadership ladder, skipping over those services and rungs that they don't think they're worthy enough for them. Children's ministry? I'm above that. Ushers? Ah, wasted my talents. Sound, media, don't insult me with such drivel. (laughs) What I want to do is teach the 
Bible ministry school, then the pastor will see just how good a speaker I am. I'm sure it'll only be a matter of time before he'll have me take over Sunday mornings. <laughs> Jesus didn't have that attitude, and he was the master. To demonstrate this, he washed his disciples' feet. That was a job reserved for the lowliest of servants. When his disciples were bickering over who was going to be the greatest among them, Jesus merely told them in Matthew 23.10, But he who is the greatest among you shall be your servant. We are here to serve. Service means anything. Children's ministry, usher, sound, media, whatever. What we are called to do, that is what we are to do. And not question, not decide whether or not we are good enough or if it's good enough for us. But let's look at the attitude. It's, this attitude, this change, this wanting to serve, this not caring where you're serving, it can only be accomplished in love. Servanthood can take us to some pretty miserable places. Most people would not mind going on a missions trip to oh, Tahiti or Hawaii. But mention some really run-down colonial in Tijuana or even a homeless camp in downtown L.A. under one of those bridges by the Metrolink tracks, well, you don't see a chorus of volunteers oftentimes. A true servant can see the need of the truly lost and destitute and can feel for them and is willing to labor in that area. In fact, Christ is known for this. The religious leaders of his day commented time and time again that he hung out with Sinners with tax collectors with prostitutes, and they showed their lack of empathy and their lack of feeling for the for the lost by literally condemning him for it. I like Jesus' response, Mark two seventeen. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He went where he was needed. Where he was going to be welcomed with open arms. People who needed help were there. Lord, help me. Zacchaeus, we all know the story of Zacchaeus. He had heard about Jesus. We don't know how the scriptures don't say. But he wanted to see him. So he's a short guy. He climbs up a tree. It was not a coincidence. Jesus made no accidental meetings. He comes up. He's just walking. He looks up and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I am going to your house today. Talk about inviting oneself to dinner. And Zacchaeus didn't look at it that way. It's like, talk to me. Yeah, come on, let's go. And he holds a party. He gets all his tax collector friends. That would be just like as popular as a gang of lawyers today. Okay, Let's get them all together. Okay, And he's not only has a great feast, he says, Lord, here's what I'm going to do. And he says, I'm going to pay this back, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do everything. And... Jesus, I'm sure, had a smile on his face. It's like, salvation's come here. This is great. You're now showing the rest the way. That's why he went there, not to the house of the local Pharisee or the house of the local scribe, where they were too up and up to deal with a lowly tax collector. God loves all of his creation. He doesn't want any man to perish. We have to have that exact same love that looks beyond dirt, beyond the tattoos, beyond the tattered clothing, beyond the horrible circumstances, looking directly into an eyes of a lost soul crying out for help that only Christ can give. And this isn't easy. Even the disciples had issues with this concept at first. When a city rejected Christ, James and John wanted to bring fire down from heaven to destroy the town. Oh, they rejected repentance. Let's destroy them. Fortunately, Christ didn't have the same outlook. He had empathy. He used it to bring up the weak to accomplish great things. Think about Peter's failure when he denied the Lord three times. Fire could have come down in heaven on the third time. It's like, no, I never knew him. And then suddenly, he's done. Okay? God didn't work that way. God used Peter mightily for the rest of his life. Take Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He was out arresting Christians and dragging them back to Jerusalem. And instead of a blinding light outside Damascus, Saul could have seen a sudden flash of flame and then suddenly was standing before, as a non-believer, before the very Lord whose followers he was trying to crush. No. God doesn't work that way. 
God used that misdirected zealousness and Saul went on to do what he could for him, knowing full well what could have happened. Now, without love, without that empathy for an unsaved world, we are, as Paul described in 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Without love, we cannot serve God fully in the way he expects us to. This is not only a love for what we are doing, but also for who we are ministering to. It's a sacrificial love, much like the love Christ had for us. He contemplated what he had to do for that. And for the most part, the world could care less. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. He had no illusions to how the religious establishment was going to receive him. He stated clearly to his disciples in in Luke 9.22 that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. Luke 24.7 tells us that he even knew how he was going to die by crucifixion which was not a pleasant experience by any stretch of the imagination. For most people, this would be a big turnoff. They knew what was going to happen to them. Sorry, I'd rather not. But Jesus knew the reason why he had to go through it and why he was willing to do so. And yes, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he stated his hope that there would have been another way to accomplish that purpose of salvation. But he made it clear that it was God's will that mattered. Your will, not mine, be done. All the disciples knew what was going to happen to them once Jesus sent them out as apostles. Church tradition tells us that all but one were martyred. But think about Paul's take on his own life at the end when he knew he was about to be martyred himself. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8 For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me all, but not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He knew he was going to be killed, and what is he saying? No regrets. I've done what I could. I ran the race. I fought the good fight. I did it. And guess what? It may be over in this life, but I got something better waiting for me on the other side. Just like Jesus knew. Yeah, he was going to go through torture, but imagine the price at the other side. The redemption of the world. People who are going to be forever separated from God, now given the chance to be with him for eternity. Our effective service is only within the Lord's will. We can have all the traits that are mentioned above, dependence, acceptance, and so forth. But if we are operating outside of the Lord's will, we are still in trouble. And we're not talking about living a reprobate life in sin. We're talking about serving the Lord as if we were the master making our own plans, devising our own ways of doing what we think God wants. But really, unless God has anointed us, running down our own path will get us nowhere. Oh, we may prosper for a while. It may look like we're doing a great thing. But it all eventually fades into ashes. Because we start losing that dependence, that self-effacement. And worst of all, we lose that acceptance. It's a lonely road for those that follow that path. One that may end with a servant standing before God, described in Matthew 7, 21-23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. For he who does the will of my Father, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? 
then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus stressed that one of the most important elements of discipleship is service to the Lord as well as to others. It is our responsibility, it is our duty, it is our obligation to be the best servant we can possibly be. Just because we cannot be perfect because we are not perfect doesn't mean we should give up. No, we have to be the ambitious servant in a good way. We cannot do it on our own strength. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit can we begin to approach the level of certainhood, servanthood that we are expected to attain. We started with the Ten Commandments. We'll wrap up with it. If you've ever seen, if you've never seen the movie, you still probably know what happened with Moses. He was the ideal servant for the Lord, standing up to Pharaoh, leading the Israelites out of Egypt, and eventually to the Promised Land. Yeah, he made mistakes. When he was first called, he made excuses too. He was, as we saw, he was the one that said, "I can't do it." I well, here's reason one, reason two, reason three, right down the line. I don't speak well. Um, they won't listen to me, whatever. But he still served the Lord to his best of his ability. He was as ambitious a servant as he was for God, as what we saw when he was a servant for Pharaoh. And his epitaph is found in Deuteronomy 34.5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. According to the word of the Lord. Moses, the servant of the Lord. May we all know, be all known by that exact same title. The ambitious servant. In a good way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these examples in scripture. We ask you to help help us take these examples to heart. We want to be ambitious for you. We want to be your servant. And it's hard, Father. This day and age, there's so many distractions, but we know you are our first priority. Your servant, we are your servants, and we want to become the best servants possible. And so place upon our hearts that zeal that we had when we were first saved, that desire to serve you. And let us keep in mind, Father, that as Paul said, there is a reward waiting for us. So at the end of the road, we can look back and say, we ran a good race. We fought the good fight. We have kept the faith. We ask you now, Father, to bless the rest of our evening. And we thank you and we praise you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.